Make sure recording in progress. Oh man, my, my cat keeps going on my keyboard, and for some reason, um, so she went on it so much that now the down arrow is always stuck on my keyboard. So like things just like randomly start going downwards on my screen all the time. Right. Um, okay, so I'm just gonna do this. Okay, so while I'm sorting this out, how how are you guys doing? Um, haven't talked this way for a while. What's yeah, up with we, um, well, we got hit by a snowstorm yesterday, so I couldn't go to the gym. So that sucks. I don't know. How is it in Colorado? Do you get to get anything? Brian? Yeah, we've gotten probably like 20 inches over the last two weeks. It's been wow. across three snows. So we had like an eight, then the next day was a four, and then we had a break, and then we got like eight more after that. So wow. yeah, it's like 20, but then yesterday it was 50 degrees and sunny. So like half of it melted and but you guys are now, probably used to it, right? They probably don't close everything. No, nothing closes. Yeah. I think we yeah. average something like 120 inches a year or something stupid like that. Yeah. Well, I was telling Abel, my gym closed. And that one of the things that I, I find less than ideal, not from a result standpoint, but from like a life standpoint with, with working with Steve is we work out five days a week, which is fine. Like if I asked him, Hey, can we program three or four? I'm sure he would do it. But I was like, you know, I want whatever is ideal. Um, so that's, that's fine, but it's just like, as far as life goes, I work out Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So if I have to go anywhere or the gym is closed for a day, it's really not, not practical for people who are not like always able to get there all the time. Yeah. I, um, I purposefully write my programs and for any of my clients that will allow me to, I write them off the calendar week so that it's just a matter of like staying in order. Like my current program now is six sessions over nine or 10 days. And mm. I just kind of like rotate through them in whatever order, like my life allows. So, um, like the last, the last two days I haven't worked out cause I did two in a row. So I was like, well, I'm not going to do three. I hate, I hate doing three in a row. So I took Friday off. And then yesterday I had to take my kid to ski lessons and had like a three hour meeting with my business partner who's in town. And uh, then I didn't work out yesterday either. And then today is my daughter's second birthday. So I may or may not work out today, which means it could be like two or three days in a row, not, not training. And then I'll have to hit like, you know, two or three in a row after that. So I just kind of. That's interesting even. because I've, you know, I, we've certainly seen different programs where it's not like on a set weekly schedule. Um, I've always kind of hated those because it, I find it very impractical. Like I need like a routine and I know that I can work out Tuesdays, Thursdays, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Mondays, I'm working like super long hours. Like it's going to be the same every week. Um, and to try to go on a rotation like yours, it sounds like at least has the flexibility of like when you, so you could do that every time, but the programs that are like on a five day rotating schedule or a six day or an eight day where I know it's not going to line up properly. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this just does not work for me because it's forcing me to do it on days that I know are not going to work well. So at least yours has that, that flexibility to it. No, for sure. People that work that, uh, that normal like nine to five weekly schedule or own their own dental practice <laughs> and are always working potentially. Um, yeah. Having the structure and stuff might just make more sense. Yeah. No, I, I, the way I usually do it is I have three or four different training days and I just rotate through those. And so it's not even a seven day. I mean, well, I guess it is in a way because obviously I'm looking at the weekly volume on a per seven day basis but yeah. uh but it's just like three or four sessions and i'm just getting them in in whatever order i want or oh, not whatever order i try to stick with the same order but um 
But now what you well, said is making me yeah. think like um, how many people might be like that. Cause I'm, I'm always thinking like, how good is this? Like you can just, if you need to miss a session, you're just moving the whole thing up. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering how many people feel like you do <laughs> when I'm giving them a plan like that. They are just like, Oh man, like where is the structure? Well, in I this? would wonder also with, with your setup, Brian, like if, if sometimes it could be, you know, more compact and other times, you know, maybe you need to space it out because of life. And we know that weekly increases in volume are the primary driver of hypertrophy. So yeah. what are you going to do in those situations? It's tough. Yeah, I, I try not. I know the, the weekly volume is the driver of hypertrophy thing, but like <laughs> as you and I and Ingrid have discussed offline, you know, there there's something to like the mechanical tension and the intensity increasing. Yeah. Um, and so, right now, no, of course not. Um, so, so like for me, that's more what I try to think of is like as long as I'm recovering to the point that I'm able to make progressive increases to the stimulus week to week, then that's more what I'm going for. And so this structure even works really well when I want to deload, because instead of the way I deload now is I just do a frequency deload. So if I'm usually six sessions every nine or 10 days, I just go like six every 12 to 14 days for like one cycle. And then I get a ton of extra rest days in. I don't really change volume or intensity much. And I come back like super refreshed, ready to go again. And I don't need to waste time doing like an intro week because I didn't actually have like a true deload. Right. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Maybe actually uh, let's talk about that a bit because um, deloading is something that uh, obviously I think most people are, are doing some sort of pre-planned deloading. Uh, in in our sphere at least but i'm not even sure like you guys were a bit more into the um, bro bodybuilding circles i think uh more so than i did like i i got into the evidence-based side of things pretty fast and before that i was doing like super slow and these things and i don't think there they recommend deloading because you're training like once a week so <laughs> um but is is that a thing that um the bodybuilders do in general like like the bros what do you Deloading think? specifically? Yeah, like do they do the whole every fourth, fifth week you do a deload week thing? I don't think so. I, I mean, most of like the bodybuilders that I have talked to, even like Nat, I mean, obviously like there's plenty of naturals like in our space that do, but like when I think of like the people who aren't following like the evidence-based fitness industry and they're just competing, um, I don't think they really put plan deloads. Dave, hmm. Max OT. I vaguely remember there being a week off every eight weeks. Is that right? Do you remember that? Oof, it's been a while since I did Max OT. Um, Max OT did have periods where you were off, I believe. Yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm it was every sure eight was weeks. Not, yeah. I think yeah. it was every eight and they recommended taking a full week off. And so that was, I remember at the time, um, man, it was 99, 2000, 2001, somewhere in that range. Mm -hmm. Um, that was the first I had heard of that because I was training with kind of abbreviated training. I listened to yeah. Abel's training piece that he did the other day. That was really interesting because I could relate to, uh -huh. to a bunch of it. But um, I got caught in abbreviated training too. Never as abbreviated as, you know, once a week or like Menser style, but, yeah. you know, two full body workouts a week or three full body workouts a week where it's just, you know, two or three compound movements each session. So we never, there was never any talk of deloads because it was just like, you're not training enough to really exactly. warrant it. But, but once we went to max OT, it felt like that every eight weeks week off thing was like a new novel concept. And I always did come back after that week off feeling like way more rejuvenated and ready to go. Yeah. I just pulled up the, uh, max OT PDF that I still have on my laptop. 
it's 165 pages. So I don't know if yep. I'm going to just like quickly find it, but no, yeah. I have it too. Yeah. I have it printed out actually in a three ring binder. <laughs> really? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I think I, I think I recall Eric talking, Eric Helms talking about uh, Max Soti that is, is this kind of like a lower volume, like a power building ish style thing? Yeah. Everything's four to six reps for basically every yeah. movement. And uh -huh. I think uh, an interval, if I'm remembering it's interval training on the bike. Too. yeah oh. or the the treadmill it's like a um i think it's a 16 minute like ascending effort thing mm -hmm. uh, or there's like a, a try to beat your total calories burned from the last 16 minute thing you did or something along those lines there's some sort of metric that that uh inspires you to try to exceed your cardiovascular performance from the prior session yes yeah they were still about like progressing with that so i'm, I'm actually there now so it says take a one week break from training every eight to ten weeks make no like this was like the classic like ebook period when like it would get you hyped as a new thing so it's like make no mistake about it max ot is a brutal form of training it's heavy it's intense it's result producing. It's a total approach. And then it's, uh -huh. it's, it's talks about like all these different terms, you know, they got their own, uh, like CR cyclical recuperation, MSR muscle specific recuperation and then all this stuff. So, oh. but yeah, once every eight to 10 weeks. Yep. Yeah. I remember, I remember on, so that, that would be actually a good, good story from both my, like my training history video and then the diet history video. So I remember getting my hands on John Kiefer's car backloading ebook mm -hmm. while getting my hands on Ben Pakulski, Ben Pakulski's MI, MI 40. Is mm -hmm. that? Yeah. 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 That, that one. And I was thinking like, okay, so if I'm going to be eating carbs, uh, like every, every night, especially in the way that John Kiefer is recommending it. I don't know if you guys read carb backloading or heard about it, but it's like I'm aware of it, but I haven't read it. You like eat low carb during the day and eat like carbs and junk junkier carbs are recommended in the evening. And um, so I was thinking like, okay, I'm going to do the most brutal training program possible with that. And then I was reading through Ben Pakulski stuff and yeah. Like, and that was also during the time when I didn't know that steroids were actually a thing. Like I mm -hmm. told you guys, so I actually thought that Ben Pakulski is natural. And <laughs> like the only reason he's so big is because he's like willing to do all that volume and everything. And uh, yeah, I just remember being like so hyped. I actually think like that, that may have been when my sleeping problems got like really exaggerated because I, I got so hyped by reading Ben Pakulski's book that I actually couldn't fall asleep that night. Like, <laughs> yeah, know, man. That, like stuff. as much... Well, that's the thing. It, it's tough because I was just talking with, um, I think Mario Tomic, but somebody else too, about like, do you tell people about like their limitations? And it's like when you're reading these books, it's like it is kind of BS. But that was that was a really exciting time, right? When you would like really believe, and like that would get you motivated. And so, uh, you know, I don't think any of us really have too much of a problem with consistency. But if you do, that that can you know be a, a good motivator. Yeah, that that's actually that's actually something I wanted to bring up. It's good good that you brought that up because I forgot about that a bit. But um, I, I've heard some interesting discussions about this lately. Like, what should we tell people? Um, because because I do realize that it can be overdone. Like, you can get a bit too discouraging with that. Um, and we were joking about like the tears of. You know, you like you start out with okay, I can achieve everything, and then after like ten years, your attitude like flips over right. to yes, yes, yes. no matter what I do, I'm gonna suck. And right. <laughs> like, so I I do think it's it's taken a bit too far, but um, I I don't know. 
like do you do you guys think it's a good idea to tell people early on about limitations or is it better to let to let them believe at least for a little while that like you can really achieve anything if you can just work hard enough i don't know dave what do you i think? feel like it's almost like when you have like an athlete and like a coach and you, you kind of have to know the athlete right and it's tough because so I, i was being interviewed by um somebody who else with my videos, Colton Lucas, and he was asking me about this because I, th I think if you were to have told me when I got started and my goal was to be 225 pounds of 10% body fat, and if you told me like, well, to be 10% body fat, when you're all said and done, you're going to be like, maybe 180, you know, maybe, um, it, I'd be like, oh man. And, and then like, I don't know if I, who knows, maybe I wouldn't have been as interested having said that i mean my high school self probably would be impressed with my current physique but as far as the i just think like you shouldn't lie i think that's like the biggest thing so to say like for instance the example i gave with him was like on on t nation and like christian Thibodeau talking about these amazing results he had and when he was very clearly enhanced and and like basically just effectively lying right i get 18 pounds with this program and this supplement stack that's just a lie and i think that stuff Like, I, I really can almost never justify something like that. Um, but I also don't think it's necessarily helpful to tell somebody like, hey, more than likely, like, you know, this is not going to happen. I think it would come into play when they are upset at their lack of progress, right? So maybe not initially, but like, I know for me, like that was one of the issues once I was getting started, I was a couple years in and I felt kind of dejected, like, this is not what I expected. And maybe then to have somebody kind of tell, like, be aware of like, hey, this is actually kind of normal. It's very unlikely that you're going to like, you know, you're, you're looking at like the one genetic freak in your school by comparison, right? And so something like that, I think would be more relevant. But to, to start, I don't know if it would be terribly helpful to like set all these limitations mentally. Yeah, yeah I feel like if somebody's comparing themselves to like blatantly comparing themselves or trying to achieve something that was obviously achieved by someone enhanced, then it would make sense to at least be like, yeah, you know, let's set some parameters of expectations here. But, but to your point, like, I don't think if someone would have told my ninth grade self, like, well, actually, you know what? I'd say my ninth grade self would be pretty happy with where I am right now, but, um, but along the For way, sure like, so. yeah. but, but <laughs> But at some point, you know, there's like, a, hey, you're going to train for the next like 20 to 30 years of your life. And, you know, you may add five pounds of muscle over the next 25 years or something along those lines. That at that point is discouraging, but you're so bought into the process at that point, right? For me, I mean, I could literally be told I'm never going to make another ounce of progress in my life. And I would still show up to the gym three times a week and, and train for an hour, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I actually, so I, I, I agree with both of you basically. Um, but a related one is, um, I, I think to some extent, the discussions over body fat and, and getting lean can be just as bad in some ways. Um, so I don't know, I'm actually planning to do a video on what I think is the ideal quote unquote body fat is for most guys. And I basically the conclusion of the video is going to be around 15%, like, like a legitimate 15%. So not the, not what some people think is 15% where like you saw like almost have abs, but you know, at 15%, a muscular guy will, will have abs. Um, mm -hmm. Like I, I do like both of you guys have like good six packs. Um, and 
Like, honestly, I think that that's one of the big lies in the fitness industry that I think is, is a big bit more, more harmful potentially than even the misleading stuff about muscle growth. Uh, that's um, so Kino body, for example, when I first got lean, like close to the single digit mark, I forgot to mention this in my diet history video, but actually his videos and his content was very helpful for me because he was one of the first people I heard addressing the psychology of dieting and things like that. But I would say that his only fault or the only thing that I think is ethically questionable in his, I mean, maybe there are multiple stuff because, you know, the marketing can be a bit over the top there, but um, he's portraying this single digit body fat territory as this point where just amazing things happen. And like sexually, your life will be on the next level, like socially as well. And it's like, I'm just seeing it like more and more that man, like, being being that super lean is just uh, not only is it not sustainable for a lot of people, but it, for a lot of people, it actually turns their lives into a complete nightmare. So hmm. I don't know. Any actually, any input on that? It's it's funny. I like uh, Greg Gallagher. I mean, maybe it's just because we've had the podcast together, right? So you get to see somebody like in a real way and, and talk to them. But he was he was great to talk to and pretty relatable. Um, as far as his content, it is a little um extreme i think at times but he'll pretty openly say like you know this is because this catches an audience and everything i think the best thing that he's done for the industry though is like one to get people less obsessed with food timing uh, and have that freedom of you know inward fasting if that's what you want to do and then two to say like focus on getting stronger over time he still is is still focusing on getting stronger not going crazy with volume three days a week. And he's one of the few people that is like basically saying you can get to near ideal levels or optimal levels with, I wouldn't say a minimal approach, but without like making it your entire life. And I think for most people, that's going to be a great approach. So I do agree that like, you know, I mean, I don't know how he stays that lean year round. Um, and I don't think promoting that is the best, but as far as like a lifestyle and, and how you go about the training, I think it's, it's a good thing. Yeah, he said on your podcast that he was doing the intermittent fasting thing and eating like 2,300 calories a day average mm -hmm. at like 183 pounds, I think, if I remember active. correctly. Yeah, so I mean, that's like a really low number. It's just weird, though, because you really do have those people that can just be lean and it's just like part of their genetics and they really, it doesn't feel like they're limiting themselves, sort of. And we had like a guy in high school that was the same way. Like you talk about that guy in high school that you looked at as like being like the most jacked and like, you know, mm -hmm. you were so impressed with him at the time. And he ended up like in retrospect being small and whatever. Right, and there's right. a guy just like that in my high school. Like, like he had hit puberty before everybody else. And like, he had actually started lifting weights in eighth grade and like mm. all this stuff. And he was being recruited by the best soccer schools in the DC area. And, um, and I like look up to him and thought he was a God. Um, and he, he ate all the food. Like he probably ate 5,000 calories a day and just was shredded like 6% body fat all the time, you know? So it's just like, maybe Greg is, is one of those types of people too, that just can stay lean without it being such a restriction on his life. Yeah. Well, but the difference in those two examples is Greg is actually not eating that much. Right. So he's right, no, eating the calories. Yeah. He's just either he's hungry all the time, or he's using something to suppress his hunger, or, you know, an intermittent fasting, and I think it's a pretty good way to do that as well. Like, it's really not that hard for me to eat. Like, I could probably eat 2400 indefinitely, 
if I was doing it with like, the, you know, high volume foods, intermittent fasting, staying busy, um, it would be my preference, but I, I've gone long stretches doing that. It's not that hard to, for me. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, actually, that's why I started to really like his content at the time back in 2015 or so, because that was actually the time when he really, so first of all, he was basically dieting down and documented that on YouTube. So you could see the process of him getting down to, I mean, probably like eight, eight-ish percent body fat. Looking back, I would have to see those videos again. But um, he did some DEXA scans and some of them said like, you know, 5.5% body fat or whatever. But yeah. he was very lean, but not, not quite that lean, of course. Yeah. Um, and so it was cool to see there because I think it was also kind of the time when he like perfected his methods and when he like really basically when that whole time period which is still lasting now when he's like always lean that kind of started there before mm -hmm. that like he was still kind of going up to occasionally like the mid-teens and he always looked good of course because he's super muscular but he was kind of still doing that bit of yo-yoing thing and he was also talking about that very honestly that like yeah well there was this time period like a year ago when I went from like 12% body fat to 8% body fat and back to 12%, like five times in like two months or something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and all of that was very relatable because like I was kind of going through that myself at the time. And um, I'm, I would be, I would be very surprised if he didn't use some sort of um, aid to help with either his muscularity, but honestly, I think more so with the staying lean aspect yeah. because because as like just like he said there it wasn't always easy for him and he mm -hmm. i mean the way he's eating is not that it's not like some amazing hack like yeah he's doing the intermittent fasting thing but he's not even eating like super filling foods and whatever at least right. in his videos he isn't so um i i, I would guess sorry go ahead you go no i was just gonna say um i know we're gonna get into like specific training stuff but i just saw a video on um so just you know, on the topic of like i guess like influencers and stuff i just saw a video where uh derek from more plates more dates is his last name out there anywhere I'm, i i think uh -huh. this is derek from more plates more dates i don't know i think i found it on on vic some 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 kind of a blog somewhere i don't know if that's true yeah, but, yeah. um but you know i guess he's selling turkesterone and then there was a the whole thing about greg Doucette selling it and his whole thing about i put on four pounds of muscle in a month with it and it's one of those topics where usually if I see like a new supplement, I, I just pretty much ignore it completely until, but then like you see it popped up, you see it pop up again and again. And then I just saw, um, I don't know, some argument that like Derek was the one who popularized it and Greg kind of stole it from him, whatever. So I'm just curious if you guys have thoughts on the morality of these like really big influencers who claim to now be looking at the science right everybody knows that like you know some nonsense on instagram they're look at this product it's amazing and it's totally bs but somebody like derek from more plates more dates who has over a million subs saying like hey like i have this product that greg over a million subs hey buy this product and then you've got decent evidence like uh jeff nipper just put out a good video on it basically saying there's no good evidence for it like at all to support any of this just anecdotes um, what do you guys think of like the moral aspect of profiting off of that? I mean, just in general, I'd say. Selling a scam product basically, or 
It, well, yeah. So like, I guess it's more interesting to me because I think a lot of people, and again, I haven't looked into that much of the research on it, but like scam products are nothing new. I guess it's more like, I'm, I guess because Derek specifically is selling it. And I think a lot of people look at him as like this, this very scientific based person. Um, and it's interesting to see the supplement making rounds when, and like, I mean, really talked about a lot. And I don't know if it's that people are buying products that have, that are like laced with something, not saying Derek is lacing his products, but you see a ton of anecdote. And I just wonder if it's just like people are buying into it from a placebo standpoint. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm just surprised to hear it promoted so much when there's really just not a lot of evidence for it at all. Is there some, like if there's like X amount of studies, like I didn't see Jeff Nippert's video, I haven't delved into the research on it, but is there like one or two studies that show positive benefits from it that you can kind of cherry pick and use to promote the product? According to the video by Jeff, there was one that showed significant benefits, but the product was supposed to have like a hundred, I don't know if it was milligrams in it and it, it was had six. So it had 6% of what it said it was supposed to. And yet somehow the results were like amazing. And they also used uh, like the bioelectrical impotence for, um, for body fat and, and all that stuff. So there's other than like that one outlier, which wouldn't even make sense because the product was underdosed. Uh, I don't believe that there's anything and there's, uh, there's plenty of evidence suggesting that these, this uh, class of compounds are not effective. So I have, uh, I guess I have a problem with that. Like, I'm not like a huge fan of people selling stuff that, that is kind of scammy like that. So the yeah. thing is that, um, at least, so I watched a couple of videos where Leo, Leo and longevity uh, vigorous Steve and then Derek by the way I, I think it's Derek Michael at least if the source is correct so where Derek and and those two were discussing turkesterone and so vigorous Steve and Leo like both clearly really wants this to be a legit thing so like they are they're both invested into you know Derek's stuff like being seen as legitimate so they will definitely I, I think they are trying to preserve their integrity and I don't think they want to be associated with scam stuff or, and I don't think they want to be lying about products publicly, but I think it, for as much as like you can do like wordplay and kind of like not bend the truth, but kind of like cherry pick, like which part of the truth you want to reveal. I think they are going to do that because they benefit from it. And Steve said that based on his observations, Turkesterone, like, and some pretty hefty dose, like, um, I don't know, basically like the max dose you could get out of Derek's product if you even want to take it for like a month. It's, it's the equivalent of like 2.5 milligrams of Anavar. Now, you know, like Mike Israel was on my podcast talking about, um, about gear, and he was saying that like a, a beginner like cycle could be something like 10 milligrams of NFR a day, 10, 10 to 30 milligrams. And like, a, I've seen a bunch of people like ripping him apart, like, but man, like 10 milligrams of NFR is not going to do jack shit. Like it's people take like, you know, 50 milligrams and that's even, that's not a super hefty dose. So if like, you know, 2.5 milligrams of NFR. And so it might be doing something, but, but it's, it, it might be just indistinguishable from even like creatine and, yeah. uh, What's the name? Uh, Vitruvian Physique, Igor Opashensky, Opashensky, whatever. He did a, like a two-month cycle on, of turkesterone, and he documented that. And at the end, there was a physique update. And I mean, you know, even with the lighting not being the same, like you really had to look. And even then, you yeah. kind of had to conclude that, you, dude, you didn't gain anything. Like, yeah. so. 
there's like nothing that can do that in two months like at that point of his development like two months you're not going to see changes right i mean if he took like real gear then real gear right right. yeah Yeah. yeah, yeah. well and i would also wonder though like if what would be the mechanism and again like I don't want to act like I, I know too much about it, but I would just wonder like, okay, so we're basically saying it's this steroid found in like insects, right? And so if it was effective, right? If someone's like, oh, it's as effective as testosterone. I don't think anybody's claiming that, but let's just say, well, then it'd be like, well, what's the mechanism? Are you saying it's a steroid? So are you saying that it then also shuts you down, right? Like if, if it's, how would it work on the androgen receptors, for instance, and work as a steroid without having the same side effects that are the reason you don't take steroids in the first place, you know, unless somehow it's, it's functioning just on muscle cells or, or somehow without these side effects. I, I don't know. I think Derek would you said be able that to, it's, sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, would you be able to take it as like a natural organization? Like, is then at that point, based on the way it's affecting your biology or whatever, is it, is it natural still or whatever, you know, or is it yeah. a steroid? Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, Derek said that it's, um, I'm, so I've seen this video, like basically when it was new, so like a year ago at least. But mm. he said that, so it's not it's not working through the like the androgen receptor. It's working through like estrogen mediated whatever receptors. Mm. It's like like so it's like a different mechanism, and that's why that's why it doesn't shut you down, and it has no androgenic impact yeah. basically. Yeah, but, and I, I don't want to completely like I'm, I'm sure it knowing Derek's videos, I'm, I'm sure that he's got something out there, you know, with a more detailed explanation. I just also often find like, I, I haven't posted it yet, but like, I know, um, even like Dante, who, you know, I do respect, he put it, he had a post like a year and a half ago. And it was like, this is going to be the biggest thing you'll see in bodybuilding over the next few years. And like, I haven't heard a single person talk about it since then. So you see that a lot, right? And then it, it just comes and goes. Yeah, I'm sure there will be something at some point that is truly going to be a, a magic potion that it is does is not giving you the side effects that steroids would but it's like close to being as effective but um I, I think at some point you would find like from medical research on like hiv patients and stuff like that like that's where i think you're going to come up with like whether it's like genetic modifications and things like that i think that will eventually be a thing um i don't know if, yeah. if it's good. probably not while it's relevant for us you know maybe when we're like 60 or something yeah but if you guys want, like, um, I would say I would give it a go. Like, I will do a cycle. But man, it's so fucking expensive. <laughs> There's no way. I mean, for testosterone. Yeah, like that. The guy that I said Vitruvian physique, like he did a breakdown at the end of like, well, okay, this is how much it worked. Clearly, not that much. And basically, this is how it how much it would cost you a month. Um, and like, com- comparatively speaking, I mean, I'm not recommending steroids, but like Anavar, for example, like it would cost you like a tenth of that. You know. Wow. So, um, yeah, no, thanks. Um, anyways, uh, so yeah, let's, let's talk a bit about, uh, training. So we had this discussion, we didn't quite finish it, um, on Instagram, but I brought up the idea of, well, I mean, it's so not like it was a novel thing, but basically I was talking about the fact that I think that it's not just that you train and you get better and bigger. So your muscles can do more. Therefore, therefore you have to progressively overload your training. But I, I think that it probably is working the other way around to some extent that like going heavier and just exposing the muscles to heavier weights is somehow an important factor for hypertrophy. And you can get somewhere without that up, up until a certain point, at least. But at, at some point, I think um, 
there is something to getting stronger and lifting heavier weights that is important for growth. But um, to, to my knowledge, there is like really no evidence for that. Or so if that is the case, we don't really know the mechanism, I think. But what do you guys think about that? Well, I think you were, yeah, yeah go, go ahead, ahead, Dave, you got it. All right. Well, I, I just think, I think it's funny that that is brought up almost as this like controversial thing, because that's what was being said for years. Like, I got to reinvent the wheel. Okay. <laughs> it, well, it's like, you know, it, it like, if you were to say to somebody like, again, like Dante or whatever, like, Hey, so I, I think like going heavier over time is going to be really important for growth. You'd be like, yeah, I've been saying this for 30 years or 20 years, whatever, because it's only in more recent times that we've now started to say, well, you know what, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's that these adaptations lead to growth or like the yeah, adaptations yeah. to training, you know, cause you to be bigger. <laughs> and then because of that, you can then use heavier weights, right? That's what people have kind of brought forth, which, which does make sense, right? Then now you can, it, it's possible. And I think that that is important because um, it, even from like a emotional standpoint, like for instance, if, if you were trying to push too hard and like, oh, I have to go heavier. It's like, well, no, keep in mind, train correctly. That will allow you to go heavier, right? Not that if you force going heavier or something or, or you know, crappy form, that's going to result in it. But to your point, I would surmise that there is something to be said for the actual, like in that session, even like adding weight um, and like the progressive overload itself is doing something for growth. Um, but I would also say that it, it is really hard to tease that out, right? Because it's happening over a longer time period. So how do you parse out which was which? Yeah. Brian, one of anything the, to yeah, so one of the things that we were talking about in the, the DM chat was that you mentioned this has been something that you've used successfully with clients as like a plateau buster. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I, I'm just super curious how... Like, how does this go? Right. So you mentioned also that it's not like a pre-planned thing. So in my mind, I'm thinking like, okay, this person's doing 10 to 12 reps. They're going, 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 they're making progress. Then they hit this plateau that they can't get through. So the, the change is, you know, okay, now we're going to do sixes and we're going to use more weight and we're going to, you know, break that plateau by going heavier, et cetera. Is that kind of like the idea that you're in your head? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's similar. So what I do is if someone is plateaued, so let's say you're doing sets of eight and you're plateaued at whatever weight, then I usually recommend them to go heavier just for the next session. So go to the next increment anyway, even though you didn't hit your rep target yet and just do an M rep. So do as many reps as you can. Probably you will get some lower rep count in, in most cases. And then next session, just, just try it again with the weight where you were plateaued and most often it works out hmm. like so sometimes sometimes not like sometimes you will have to try it again but it but it usually works eventually and and so what i noticed is that when people don't do this so like they don't pay attention of me pointing this out or whatever and then i look at their log and i see that they just kept trying to hit their rep targets with that weight then it, it just like doesn't freaking happen for like for like know, six sessions in a row or something um, which is pretty bad if I don't notice it for six mm. sessions, but like they just keep uh, beating their head into the wall. And, um, and it's weird, right? Because like, I would think that, okay, like, even if you're not increasing the load, if you're plateaued somewhere, then by definition, that weight is still challenging. So like, mm. you should still get that training adaptation. So 
but why don't they get it though? So I, I would think that going heavier, like it doesn't, mm-hmm. like it, it's, it's the nervous system aspect that helps with strength development. Um, but, but still, but, but so the, the reason I brought that up is because oftentimes then they actually are able to progress for like weeks and weeks after that, which is, which yeah. is kind of strange because like at the lower reps or even back at the rep range, they were stalled at. Yeah. Yeah. Where they were stalled at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's for like one or two sessions, huh? Is kind of what you find of at the lower rep weight, higher, higher weight. Yeah. Usually just if, if it works, then it's just one session. You go up heavier, mm-hmm. then next session you go back to where you were stuck and then you try to hit it again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I just, so the reason I find that interesting is because like you would think that if you were plateaued, then, and if we are going off of this, this assumption that, okay, it's your training is what's driving progressive overload and not so much the other way around, then you would think that if they were plateaued, then, okay, maybe you're able to get through this plateau with this little bit of a hack, Mm -hmm. but then you were, you're quickly going to plateau again. But, mm. but since they're getting this prolonged progression after that, then it tells me that, okay, maybe it's not like there wasn't anything wrong with the training setup, like structurally, but you just kind of like needed that exposure to a heavier weight somewhere. Mm. It's interesting. I've been using a approach of like, I would call it progressing the stimulus over progressing in load or reps necessarily. So like, you know, starting example would be like starting a, a mesocycle with, one to two RIR. And then the next week, you know, you're going to zero to one RIR, uh, maybe increasing weight, maybe keeping the weight the same. It's proximity to failure. Then the next week, you know, you maybe do one or two partial reps after you fail. And then the next week it's like three or four partial reps after you fail. And then the week after that, maybe it's like a reverse drop set. Like I just put on Instagram, like, you know, uh, yeah. adding weight and continuing. So, so the stimulus is continuing to progress. It's not necessarily that I'm focusing in that five week period on increasing load necessarily, but after I go through that cycle of each week progressing the stimulus, then I come back to, okay, now I'm back to one to two RIR, but this time it's going to be with a heavier weight potentially if the adaptations have occurred than it was five weeks prior. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, it's kind of similar, similar to what Brian Haycock was doing with his hypertrophy specific training. So uh, it was so long ago that I've seen it, but I think, you were Dave, have you done that? Or have you read I his have, book yeah. or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it was like you were going from higher reps to lower reps. And then but then you were also going closer to failure as the weeks went by was it was it so like every so you take like a 15 rep max, a 10 rep max and a five rep max. And so let's say you're like, let's just say it's like 100 pounds for 15. Right. So then you'd like backtrack. So would that be like 95, 90, and then like 85, 80, 75. So you'd start the first week, 75 for 15, and you're doing the same exercises three times typically. Um, so it'd be like, well, I'll, I'll elaborate on that. But let's just say, for example, it's like 75 for 15, 80 for 15, 85, 90, 95, 100. So at the end, you're basically hitting true failure. But five of your six sessions, you're not going to failure. Um, and you can use different exercises in which case you would use like the equivalent load. So like you could do like squat, leg press, squat, leg press, squat, leg press. And then in that case, you're still really only hitting failure on that last one, but you'd have to kind of figure out, do you know what I mean? Like whatever percentage you would need for each Mm -hmm. uh, relative exercise. And then the next two weeks would be doing that for tens 
And then the next two weeks, we'll be doing that for fives. There's a variation of the program where I think you can then use eccentrics. Mm -hmm. um, I never did that. And then you take, I think it's actually a two week uh, break after that, a desensitization yeah. period, which I don't think I ever did it as two weeks. I think I did it as one, but it's, it's a similar principle. I think it's one more example though of non-failure training working just fine. Now you're still having periods of going to failure. And I think that is important with this whole discussion of like how far from failure, because even like, like right now working with Steve, the last like two weeks out of a so five week meso and one week deload. So it's really like two out of every six weeks, I'm going to like a zero RAR more or less. And then, you know, um, with Brian Haycock. So for me, that's like one third of the time. And then with Brian Haycock, it's also about one third of the time, right? In sessions five and six, and then you're kind of deloading every time. So it's interesting, um, but obviously a lot like Steve and, and company have gotten great results and mm -hmm. a lot of people loved HST. So I don't know if I would ever buy in, well, I don't say ever. I don't know if I buy into the idea that like always going three or four RAR is going to optimize gains. But I think we have plenty of evidence to suggest that like doing that a decent amount of the time and sparingly going to failure is fine. Using it as a progression method, like, like kind of Israel says, right? Like getting closer to failure each session is in some way, like tricking your body into some form of progressive overload mm -hmm. or overload. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't buy into the idea that you can do three, four RIR uh, all the time because I think yeah. you can do five or six RIR. Just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, actually. Uh, so, so that's what you're doing with Steve. So you're starting with like three or four and then yeah, you go to so zero. Mm -hmm. So it's like three or four. It's actually, so I started at three. The problem was starting at three. And again, I'm like estimating these, but if it's a five week cycle, then it's three, two, one, and technically it would be zero and zero. Right. So, um, but he does emphasize, you know, and it's the first week is really three to four RAR. And also it's not about like, you know, you're really just trying to progress each week. So if, if you add a rep, but you're still at the same RAR as last week, like that's okay. Like you don't need to like keep going. Like it's just focusing on progression. Now, the reality is that would be more applicable to like a beginner who's actually gaining a lot of new strength because my strength is not going to change that much. It actually, when I add a rep, I do drop an RAR, right? Relative to the previous week, almost every time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, and, and to, like that is, you know, when I'm all said and done with Steve, I will probably make like a conclusion video and, you know, what I took away and everything. But I would say that it's almost like, like why in that case, would you push to failure every single time? Um, if we, if we know that it's not going to make much of a difference and it's like, I guess like you're just, trying harder and increasing your injury rate uh, in risk for not much benefit, you know, potentially. Clearer diagnostics, maybe. Say again. Clearer diagnostics on like a week to week basis, right? Because you have right. to wait until six weeks to essentially get to your week two again, and then you can compare week two to week two, right? I mean, that's kind of the idea. Well, yeah, I was going to say that, that it only really affects you for the first meso because then for subsequent mesos, you have a week to week comparison. Yeah, exactly. Which I will say, though, is hard because, you know, if you're doing a new exercise and you're trying to gauge like a three RIR, like I'm doing like reverse machine lateral or reverse machine flies. And it's like, yeah, I, I mean, I guess this kind of feels like three RIR, but like when you really, you know, sometimes we've talked about, you'll be surprised you do a, a machine 
And it's hard, but if you really crank it out, like you might get another six reps, right? So um, I do find that a little bit tough. Yeah, and I I think um, like like Dave just said, I think the the clear diagnostics week to week, I mean, realistically, it might not really matter for someone who is actually advanced because, yeah, I mean, but you're still diagnosing like nothing happening each time because like week to week, you're just not right. going to make big leaps. But for someone newer, uh, it, it I, I do see that as a downside. Uh, but, but I did say, say that before that I think um, this RP style, Steve Hall style progression, I think makes more sense for advanced people. Because I mean, realistically, if you can measure actual progression like every four weeks um that's that that's still i mean i think most most people would welcome that at the advanced level and you know so if if that's the case then this kind of method can work just fine um the the only thing about the whole rir thing so i mean yeah i think like three four rir um yeah i i i would guess that most people can grow on that just fine of course it's it's hard to tell what the difference is between the effectiveness of the stimulus between zero RIR and that. But, you know, I, I mean, I rented to you guys about this on Instagram, but I just, um, I'm, I'm just a little bit bothered by how like readily accepting the evidence-based community is to this whole idea of like five, six RIR seems to be as effective as zero RIR. Cause I mean, maybe, maybe that will pan out, but just, um, like being so readily on board with this, it bothers me a little bit because I've just seen so many examples of them being super conservative of taking some like really surprising finding like this on, on board because they were just applying the better save than sorry uh, principle. So yeah, like let's aim for a pound of uh, or a gram of protein per pound of body weight, even though we have a lot of research to show that like, you know, 0.6 is, is, is just, in, just fine. But it's like, well, but it might still be beneficial. But with training, it's like, nope, looks like five or six RIR, just as good. And it's like, would, would, shouldn't we like really emphasize that? But just to be sure, like maybe be at yeah. like a two, two, three, two, three RIR at most for the most part. Um, I don't know. I don't just be, oh, yeah, go Dave. Uh, I was just going to say, I don't know if that's totally true from what I've heard. I, I mean, so like somebody like Mike Zordos, um, he he does seem to be more in the camp of like you know this is more evidence that we had like five rir could optimize hypertrophy and he seems to lean a little bit more towards that i would guess that if you were to ask eric helms steve hall and mike israel what they think about it i feel like they would probably all say something like we have clear evidence that three or even four rir is very effective for hypertrophy um maybe a little bit of mixed evidence that going to failure or close to failure uh has utility and because it's not completely clear i would recommend going to failure periodically one like just as a just in case kind of a thing two to really see where you're at three to have periods where you're testing that so you remember what going to true failure is like and then your RIRs can be more accurate um I I think they'd all probably agree with that I don't I I can't imagine any of them would say let's just not go to failure I 
I think that's yeah. for sure. Right. I think that would be their perspective, I guess, to, to kind of align with what Abel's saying and like me being a little more questioning of this would be just that these scientists who are for the most part advanced athletes who have been training Hale Helms is 15 to 20 years, like Zordos probably around the same, the studies that are being done showing that you can get these gains at five, six, four RIR, whatever it is, are clearly not done on them as a population. So it's, it's interesting that they're so easily willing to extrapolate data from like someone with two years experience and be like, well, that person can make gains or as a general population, these people can make gains. So for sure, like that should apply to us too, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what I actually thought about regarding this is, so obviously this was go against the effective reps uh, concept entirely, at, at least if we are looking at effective reps as the last five reps before failure, because it like, like in that case, wouldn't it actually say that those are ineffective reps? Like if there's no difference between going to failure and stopping five reps shy of failure, yeah. then the last five reps are, are, aren't they actually ineffective? Because they don't add anything <laughs> compared to stopping there. Yeah. Are the studies, uh, but aren't they, they're volume matched. Right? Yeah. So usually matched? it's like eight sets of, so there was one that was like eight sets of five with a 10 rep max compared to uh, basically four sets of 10 with a 10 rep max. So I think that the volume was equated in that situation, but like you had four mm -hmm. sets to failure versus eight sets not to failure and the results were pretty similar this was a study a number of years ago but like i think they're usually along the lines of something like that yeah and, and i think most of these guys would also say that like you know if you're in a time crunch if you're not trying to do as much volume that you can just choose to go to a higher intensity right or, or like a, a closer to a zero rar um i think at least here in like mike talk about it he would argue like maybe two sets at a two rar in his opinion, would be more effective than one set at a zero RER and less injurious and things like that. Um, I mean, I'm still open to it. I think, again, it's been 10 weeks with Steve and like, it, it's, it is still hard to, to really judge how things are like going. Um, but I think it's been fine. And now again, I'm doing significantly higher volume than I well. I'm doing a lot more overall training than I was before. So it's hard to say, could I could I apply this principle of uh, higher RIRs to my previous lower volume training? I suspect maybe not because I was only doing like six to eight sets per muscle group before. And I feel like if you're going that low in volume and you're doing like three RIR, I mean, maybe you'll maintain like at this point, like maybe I would just maintain, which I guess I was doing anyway, but um, I, it's not something I would probably advise, you know, the combination. Um, yeah, so, okay. So is there anything about the, regarding this that you guys want to address or actually Brian, when do you need to jump? Cause I, I know you're, uh, I'm good till seven twenty, So we have like 25 more minutes or something like that. Oh, cool. Then, um, do you guys have like some training topic that you were expecting to be brought up or, okay. or if not, then I will talk about back training. <laughs> well, we, we did talk about like form stuff a lot. Um, mm -hmm. and I, one, one idea I was just like joking, I was like thinking in my head was like, maybe after like six months with, with Steve Hall, I'll go like the total opposite direction and do six months with like Jeffrey Verdi Schofield, because he's all like, you yeah. know, letting form get loose and cheat reps and like go beyond failure. 
Uh, I mean, it, it's literally like almost like opposite camps. So it's just kind of amusing. Yeah. And that's a big thing that I'm doing now, as you guys saw um, what I, I posted in our group regarding the reverse drop sets and like back training and, you know, muscles failing at short lengths and long mm -hmm. muscle lengths and all that stuff. So I think that that super applies well to back training in general. So if you want to dive into that, we can all cover that yep. together. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. So um, yeah, first, first of all, I listened to Dave's podcast with, with uh, Joffrey, Jeffrey or Joffrey. Um, yeah, I will, I will say it like, uh, I was, you guys know, natural hypertrophy, the YouTube channel. I know uh, of him, this yeah. French guy. I love how he says his name, Geoff. So I'm going to say it like that. Um, how does he say it? Geoff. Uh, he's Geoff. French. Yeah. Is, is like really fun. Like he, his English is amazing. Like, ten, like he has better English than I have, but he has like super strong French accent and it's mm. a lot of really fun to listen to him anyway. So, um, so yeah, I, I listened to you guys as podcast and you mentioned how you, you do like to cheat a bit on shrugs, for example. Um, my question would be like, how do you like anytime, like, even if I'm standing super straight with shrugs and I don't use any momentum, I always find it a bit like ooh, fuck, awkward for my back. Like, uh, I, like it doesn't hurt, but it feels like if I just move like a little bit back and forth, like it can get a bit awkward. Like you, do you have a method for doing that without that being an issue? I don't know. I don't do shrugs. I was just saying that I think it's a very tough exercise to gauge because if you were to literally take no weight and just go like this, there is no way you're doing like the people who are doing shrugs with like 405, there's no way that their reps are like the same. And I'm not saying that that's bad because you could make the argument like Alex did, um, Alpha Destiny. He was saying, you know, a lot of what you get out of shrug is the weighted stretch. So I'm not saying that's it's a bad way to train. I'm just saying you're not using full range of motion, like what is actually capable to be done. You're, you're not using that. And so I think it's very difficult to gauge because I could take a 80 pound dumbbell and it's like, it's super easy for most of the range of motion, but to get peak contraction, it's actually pretty hard to like do that for higher reps. Or I could take 200 pound dumbbells and I could just kind of, you know, jerk it up. And I was just saying that like that and calves are two examples that are very hard to really gauge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Brian, do you want to elaborate on that um, reverse drop set thing? Cause I, I, this was actually the first time I heard that, but it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it's basically came out of my obsession with lengthened position of movements, you know, in the last year to two with all of the studies coming out and things like that. So I've been obviously for the last year messing around with, uh, partial reps at the length in position after a short movement fails. So like a pull down or a row or many of those types of variations of movements, like extension, leg curl. Um, and then through talking to Cass at the, the N one thing, uh, our last episode we did was actually like right before I went to this thing. So slightly different perspective now, I guess, but, um, through talking to him and kind of talking about, you know, how can I better bias the length and position in movements. Um, two of the ways that he kind of talked to me about doing it beyond just doing partial reps at the end is this reverse drop set idea. And then the idea of doing like one and a quarter or one and a half reps where you 
do the half or the quarter rep at the bottom position. So that's kind of one thing I've instituted into my hip extensions now, because I want to get a little more hamstring out of it and a little less glute. So I'm, uh, I'm doing like a one and a half rep at the bottom and then a full rep. And that counts as one rep type thing. So that's the first time I'm introducing that um, kind of way to lengthen overload. Uh, but the reverse drop set idea is essentially another one he came up with. And um, it, it really, it, it speaks to me because um, it really allows you to use a heavier weight and get the length in position versus when you're doing partial reps, you've already failed in the short position. Um, so as you guys were kind of questioning, you know, the, the, the answer that I use is that there's a little more metabolite buildup, like lactic acid and things like that, when you actually take the short position to failure and then do partial reps versus if you take the short position just shy of failure, maybe two to three reps shy, and then you add 20% is kind of the idea for the, the reverse drop set. And then you basically do reps with as much as you can get out of them until you can't get, you know, X amount of range of motion. So the way that I usually or implement it would be, I try to do an initial set of six to 10 reps, you know, two to three reps shy of failure, full range of motion, and then add 20% load. And then I'm going to try to get six to 10 reps, partial range of motion. And, um, and that tends to happen pretty, pretty accurately. I usually get slightly less on the the, the amount of reps that I can get with the heavier weight on the partials than I did with the full range of motion, but it's within, you know, a rep or two. And, uh, I get an incredible stimulus from it. It's a way to, to overload that length and position and turn something that, you know, back training is something where you never get sore because everything is short overloaded. It's really hard for us as we've discussed to, to get the lats and the, the back sore, but using these methods, um, think to, to prioritize the length of position, like the reverse drop set. And then like, you know, doing the one arm pull downs and doing the hip shift. So another mm -hmm. one, like coming across the body like this to do your, your pull downs, and then you can actually fail coming across the body, but when you shift your hips and now you're facing forward more direct, uh, with the cable station, you can get like an additional three reps there. So I've been using a little more of these techniques and I'm still not getting like blasted in my back, but I'm for sure getting that, like gnarly crampy like i'm fatigued and worked feeling more than i was getting just by taking movements to short overload failure hmm. um how do you so like i'm wondering what would be the difference between that in effectiveness versus just using momentum on pulls mm -hmm. so like on a one-arm pull down well i mean if you're using a chest support you can't really do that but um but otherwise like you know, you're using momentum, like in a way you're kind of doing the same thing because you're making the bottom position uh, easier. Um, yeah, I agree. I think that the, my problem with that method, because I used that for years, right? Like I would do pull downs until, you know, I couldn't do any more strict. And then there'd be like a little like jerking and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then there's no, the bar basically floats at the bottom, but it's really hard through the top and the middle. Um, and mm -hmm. I've used that for years. The problem is, is a, I feel super fatigued from that. Like I actually can feel that fatigue, not just in the target muscles, but like, you know, a little more systemically, if you want to add it up set cumulatively over sets. Um, yeah. And then the, the main reason for me now is just diagnostics. Like I'm so focused on being able to progress my stimulus week to week. And like, if I did three extra reps with momentum, like it's so hard to categorize like, okay, I used this much momentum this week and now I'm using 
you know, the same amount, but I did three more, or did I actually use more momentum, right? Whereas when I'm doing these super strict movements, like in that seated cable row one where I did the reverse drop set, my form never changed. I just added weight and got smaller ranges of motion. So that said, I got nine full reps and then seven partial reps at the heavier weight. That now tells me that the following week, I'll either get 10 reps on the first set and try to get seven partials again, or if I only get nine reps on the first set again, then maybe I'll try to get eight partials on the, the added weight set. So it allows me to have diagnostics where week to week I can look and be like, okay, I may not have added weight, but I did add an additional partial rep or I added a full rep or whatever it is. And I can see that. Yeah. Well, actually that that's one thing I like about those uh, chest supported like iliac pull downs is that like the, um, you know, like the cable is in a, well, how do you say that? You know, like it basically just gets easier in the bottom position naturally because of like where the the angle of the cable and how the bench is set up. So, and actually, I I realized that. Well, actually, Dave and I talked about that with the um, lap prayer. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, why do you lean back in the bottom position? It's well because then you're stimulating the lats more because you know like the res resistance is coming from the right angle. But actually. If you're just kind of staying like you're leaning forward, like, yes, the resistance is less in the bottom, but like, that's kind of a good thing if I think about it, because like that would be the sticking point anyway, the short, short, shortened position. So um, wouldn't the momentum aspect almost be the opposite? So like if, if you're doing, let's say a pull down and you're going to failure, you know, strict form all the way down to here. And like this last part is kind of like where you're, you're pretty weak, right? So as like in your example, that you'd then just do like the top half, right? Like that would be an example of how you would do that. So if you're using a ton of, and the idea is then, okay, now this part is what's going to really be worked. Mm -hmm. If you were to use momentum, you're using momentum because you can't get this bottom portion. And so if you were to then like chuck yourself back, you're kind of skipping this to get the momentum to complete this portion, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. you're almost taking away from that stretch aspect. Yeah, no, I get that. It makes sense when you say it. The way that I think about it is more in like the way of using momentum in a lateral raise, which I guess in, in your description could actually apply to this too. But like when you do a lateral raise, it kind of floats at the top. Like if you use momentum, you know, you get to that top position and it's just the, the dumbbells almost like float up there. It feels like there's little resistance. And the hard part is just getting them going at the bottom. So, so yes, it's like you're getting them going at the bottom. So you're kind of getting through that bottom position, but it does make the top position easier as well so i, I guess it would also depend on where like a barbell row i think is a really good example where you use the momentum so for example let's say you're, again you're trying to get that stretch right so and i'm like i'm close to the camera but if you're like out here if you were to use momentum from the start then i think what i just said is true and you're you're doing the opposite of what you want right you're going yeah. through that lengthening position too easily if however you were to just go until you can't go anymore and then kind of hitch a little and bit. then yeah. that last bit then sure you for the sake of completed reps like full range of motion reps you could go through that hardest part and that's actually i mean i've seen um jeff nippert and others talk about that with calves too where you know you start down here you can go all the way up here eventually you're only going to be able to go here but then you'll just kind of kick and then the same thing here and then you just kind of kick you could alternatively just do 
what you're doing and just keep going until the range of motion itself limits. I don't really know if one would be better than the other. I, I think to your point earlier, probably trying to force the full range of motion with kicking or momentum is probably just more systemically fatiguing and, and maybe not much more actual stimulus. So. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point with the using momentum to get through the hardest part piece. Um, yeah, I don't really know what to say. I guess the, the answer then is just the diagnostic piece of being able to see, you know, less fatigue for sure. And then being able to see week to week that, that something mm -hmm. is progressing and it's not momentum based. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah I agree. That, that was a yeah, that was a really good point. A thinking person. Just kidding. Um, no, no, but I, I like the reverse uh, drop set idea. And so like why it immediately resonated with me is, is for that fatigue aspect, exactly. Because on shrugs, for example, it's not the most difficult movement in the world, but um, if you're doing it for something in the 10 to 15 range for reps, which is, I think, pretty appropriate for something like a shrug, like if I'm going to go kind of past full ROM failure and I'm just going to wait until I can only raise here, like that's going to be super fatiguing. But if I think about the idea that, okay, like I would do some reps until like, this is like not really pristine and then add weight. And then only I would have to do a few more reps here. That's uh, I, I quite like that idea. So I am a huge fan of that too. I equate it almost to the notion of like, you know, some people will program sets of like 15 to 20 reps to try and get that like metabolite feeling or the sarcoplasmic hypertrophy or whatever you want to call it. But I much yeah. prefer to do like a same muscle group superset where you do like a six to eight rep set and then a six to eight rep set, because now you're getting much more efficient where you're getting that like fatigue point twice, two different movements, more stimulus, and you don't have to go through the monotony of like the first 10 reps that mean absolutely nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, when you do the second set, I, I saw in like in your video, you basically went to failure. Is it almost just part of the concept that you you almost have to go to failure, or would you ever do that latter part of the drop set and keep it to like a two RER? I actually I don't know if I am familiar, Brian, with where you stand on. Like, are you almost always going to failure in your sets, or? Yeah, so it's. I <clears throat> I would say once I get through the first like week or two of whatever my mesocycle is or my reset point, I'll go like one to two RIR, then zero to one RIR. And then every week after that second week is pretty much failure or it's like zero to one RIR. I wouldn't call it mm -hmm. failure because I don't actually fail movements until unless they're a short overload and then I'm going into partials or whatever, whatever. But on something like a pendulum squat or like something like that, it's one to two RIR, then it's zero to one RIR, then it's just zero to one RIR until I'm too fatigued and I have to like kind of reset. Yeah. Um, but for movements that are conducive to doing additional intensity techniques, it's like one to two RIR, then zero to one RIR, then it's some partials, then it's more partials, then it's reverse drop set. So there's like a progression of stimulus where I'm I'm trying to add more work beyond failure for a couple weeks until I reach a point where the fatigue is high and then, you know, take a frequency deload or whatever it is and kind of reset with like one to two RIR and work back up. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, by the way, just random thing. I saw a video from Joffrey, Barry Discofield, where he is, um, or Je okay, Jeffrey or Joffrey? Let's do it <laughs> over. Jeffrey? Amazing. Yeah. It's Jeffrey. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just some things I just cannot 
remember. Um, <laughs> so uh, he was doing a set of leg presses to failure, but like to complete absolute failure. Like he tried like really just die in that leg press and somehow press it out one more time and he just couldn't. And like you, you could just see the agony after that. Like he was just talking into the camera. It's like, so like this kind of failure, like it, it, it ruins your day. Like it's, it's, it's been an hour and, and I'm still like, and like, yeah, yeah. Like you, you can see just how failure on some movements is just, um, just truly yeah. so much more difficult than on others. And, and it's, um, yeah, on those things, like even a, a three RIR is pretty damn hard. It's, mm -hmm. um, so anyways, um, I, don't think I have anything else to raise. Like, is there something you guys really want to bring up or, or Brian, you got to jump at this point? I have a few, 10 more minutes or so. I think we're fine. If there's anything else you guys want to talk about. Um, one thing I was thinking earlier when you guys were talking about Turkesterone is um, you guys are probably too young, but did you ever mess around with the ECA stack before it was illegalized? I was, I was familiar with it, but I never, oh wait, no, actually. So ECA, cause I, I was thinking you meant the, um, what was it? The, DMA. What was the uh, one that got banned? DHEA? No, no. It was, it was like DMAA or whatever the... Shoot, what was that? MDMA. Just kidding. <laughs> right. Well, that's what everybody... No, I, I'm pretty sure it was... Yeah. was it Dimethyl something or other. It was, yeah. It was oh, banned, DMP. Like, right, right. No. Um, All right, DMAA. Yeah, yeah, that was it. It was an amphetamine derivative. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. You guys haven't heard of that? That was like a big thing. I don't oh, know wow. if I know much about it, but um, I was a big ECA stat guy before, um, before my, it was illegal. My friend's big on it. I, I don't know. I, I think I actually talked to Lyle about it a few times and he's, he doesn't think it's like too risky. Um, I, I think, I don't know. Like, I know it's good for appetite suppression. Yeah. Um, I, I think it can help, but I'm not trying to say it's not effective. I just, at this point, I, I just kind of stay away from anything that's like overly stimulating, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's fine. For sure. I was thinking about it in the context of what you were talking about with uh, Grego Gallagher and like how he eats mm -hmm. the few calories and, you know, you're like, maybe he's doing something to like suppress his appetite or whatever. Yeah. And it just made me think back to like the early days of like, I think it was late Bronchi. 90s, early 2000s. So Broncade was like the next thing that people did after the ECA stack was utilized, yeah. but yeah. you used to be able to literally go to GNC and buy Xenadrin or Muscle Tech or whatever the brand was. And it would be ephedrine, caffeine, aspirin, and, really. you know, it would get you going i mean you would pop out of those things and like your whole body would heat up and you wouldn't eat for hours it would be like it was it literally felt like a dirtier version of adderall or something like that <laughs> which as like a 18 19 20 year old kid was like party drug slash bodybuilding drug right and uh and i'm sure not healthy but super effective at suppressing <laughs> appetite giving energy for workouts and, and things yeah. like that so it yeah i mean i wanted to try it but um unfortunately i like ephedrine is just like it's impossible to get it anywhere here which is kind of weird because otherwise they're super lax with stuff but um i i actually want to do a video on all the appetite suppressing stuff that i tried because i basically tried everything and by the way like all the my best pictures my leanest pictures i like those are all like nicotine and caffeine is the only thing i used during those um all these things that i tried were like in the past like six months or so um and all for brief periods because like these are either expensive as shit or i mean these are just not meant for long-term use 
But um, yeah, I mean, I tried a, a few of these uh, substances and some are pretty good, um, but I'm curious how ephedrine would work because for example, modafinil, uh, which, I, which I, I like to use at first, it, it's very, very potent at suppressing appetite, but it, it, like that aspect of it goes pretty quickly because, and I think really it only works well for appetite suppression for as long as it's like a bit like over the top stimulative mm -hmm. like like the first time i tried it like i was like euphoric like i couldn't concentrate on anything because it was just too much but then like you pretty quickly get used to it and you don't get that mega big kick from it and at that point it wasn't that good for appetite suppression either so i experienced yeah, never... the same yeah, I did modafinil for a while too. Yeah, and I, I experienced the same. It was like a week or so of that kind of euphoric and that appetite suppressing feeling. And then once your body adapts, it just kind of is back to normal, which I think is just your body finding its natural homeostasis anyways, right? Like, like the same thing happens to me. Like, you know, if I go through a period where I'm smoking a bunch of weed, then I get really hungry and then I stop smoking weed and I'm less hungry. And then eventually, you know, it'll be like, a week later, my body's like, oh, well, you still have to eat food. So here your, your hunger's back, you know, it just kind of like oscillates up and down. Um, and your body's just naturally going to find where it needs to be to, to not be hungry. Yeah. I, I never have tried modafinil. I mean, I've heard of it and looked into it a little bit, but never tried it. I mean, really caffeine, I was, I wouldn't say I was ever big on caffeine. I mean, I had periods where I would have up to like 300 milligrams in a day, but that was really it. Um, but those sort of supplements and drugs never appeal to me as much as anything to gain muscle, because I guess it depends on like what your issue is. Right. So like you guys, like Abel, I know you've like worked on getting really lean and I think we're okay with how you looked muscularly for me. The reason that I would ever stop cutting, it was pretty much never, I don't think I've ever stopped a diet because I was like, oh, I'm just too hungry. Or even if I'm just too fatigued. Like those suck, don't get me wrong. But for me, it was always like, I can't stand losing any more strength. I can't stand losing muscle. Like I, I don't feel like I have enough muscle to begin with. So to me, I always just found fat loss as like, you can do it without supplements. Those just make it easier. Whereas like the whole temptation of steroids or something like that was like, you literally cannot achieve this without it. So if it's just about more hard work, I'm all for it. But with muscle mass, it's like, this is just an unachievable thing without the drug. So, it's, you know, from like 20 to 25, I would say the big temptation was something like anabolics, because it's, it's actually uh, making something possible that otherwise wouldn't be. Yeah, like, uh, it's, um, Brian, uh, like, I'm gonna let you go in a, in a sec, just really in one minute, I'm gonna react to this. So I, I agree with that. Um, and so the things that I wanted to experiment with these things for uh, but first of all, I just wanted to see how, how they're actually working. But secondly, why I could see the utility in using these occasionally is, for example, if you're in a social situation or something, or like, like you're out, you're not around, you're like high volume filling foods. And then kind of just an, as an insurance policy that you're not going to crack, or if you do, it's not as bad. So for that, it could be, so for example, I was in, in a weekend house of uh, my in-laws not that long ago, well, okay, a few months ago, and there I popped in one of these pills that I got. And, and for that, it was pretty cool. Like, I just didn't have that. I was like, oh man, I'm so hungry, but am I going to eat their shitty food and I'm, then I'm going to get fat or no, I can do it. I can do it. Like, I didn't have that because it was like, kind of just uh, took the edge off. So for that, it can be nice, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I, um, I've always felt like it was more work for me to lose fat, not to say that putting on muscle is easy, but like just gaining weight for me was easy. Like I can easily, you know, eat up to 200 pounds and not feel like I'm so full and bloated and like, woe is me type thing. Um, but like to get down from 200 to 180 or 185 or whatever, like I have to really like commit to it. And it's not necessarily that the hunger is the worst part. I just like really enjoy the freedoms of being able to like go out and eat dinner with my wife or, you know, have some beers with the boys and maybe there's some fried food involved or something along those lines. And, and those things are the things that I find difficult when, uh, when dieting. So substances that do suppress appetite, just make that easier for me because those same substances also tend to give you energy. So you want to go out and like hang out with people and be social, but you're also not like so hungry that you're going to devastate everything in sight. So that's kind of that balance for me. Yeah. Yeah. Just real quick. The, um, the product, if you guys have not heard of DMAA, maybe you've heard of Jack 3D. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That was what was in that product. Got it. That got banned. Yeah. I looked up, I haven't heard of the, the generic, like the actual compound name, but, um, yeah, just, just on what Brian said, like, so I tried this thing called uh, Sibutramine. It's, um, I think it's similar to Modafinil in, in that it's, um, like some sort of an amphetamine derivative, but it's, I mean, it's supposed to be like very non-stimulatory and it is in the long term, but longer term, I tried it for like, like two weeks or so. Um, but it's, so the first time I tried it, it was, um, I got such a freaking kick from it. I was in the gym and like, I couldn't focus on working out because I just wanted to go up to people and like chat with them and hug them and tell, tell them <laughs> how much I love them. I was like, what the hell did I take? Like, did I just take like freaking cocaine or what, what, what the hell is this? Um, but, but then like, so like the next day, like half as much then half as much, so similar to modafinil, like that goes really quickly. So, uh, but anyway, that was just a funny thing. Maybe I should cut this out and painting a really bad picture of myself here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just spent the last like 10 minutes of the podcast talking about drugs we take. Yeah, pretty drugs much. Drugs you guys take. <laughs> right, right, right. Dave's like, I'm a doctor, guys. Come on. <laughs> Don't lump me into this. Um, all right, folks. So yeah, it was, it was uh, fun. And um, I'm going to let you guys go. So just please uh, tell us where we can find you. For Brian, yeah, so I'm uh, at Brian Borstein on Instagram. Um, on February 14th, I'm dropping a new program with uh, one of my companies. It's a Paragon Training Methods, which is usually a, a female-based program for the most mm -hmm. part. But I'm dropping a Follow My Program program because I've had a number of people um, kind of buy my general programs and be like, hey, this doesn't really look like the way you train. And then they cancel their membership. So I've mm -hmm. had enough requests at this point that I think there's enough people that want to follow my program. So if you are interested, um, you can you know follow my stories, follow my programming. It'll be posted on the site, um, New Cycle on February 14th. And uh, that's my story. Awesome. Dave? All right. So Instagram, Dave underscore McConey. I'm the one person here who hasn't been banned at all yet. So hopefully <laughs> keep that going. Um, Brainsandgainspodcast.com, Brainsandgainspodcast on YouTube. Oh, yeah. I have a podcast too, Eat, Train, Prosper. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So please follow these guys there. And um, yeah, a new Instagram for the next week, at least before I get banned again, <laughs> it's called uh, able, but it's a clever name, able to lift, but so mm. A B E L cause I'm able to lift. <laughs> you ah. get it. And able to yeah. post on Instagram. Oh, <laughs> that should be my backup account. That That's, be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's fine. All right. All right. Thanks All right, guys. guys.
Yeah. Uh, I've wondered.